Well, happy Father's Day. Uh, Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Make your way to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 18 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. As you can see behind me, and this is also found in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9, also in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9. And each recording of the event, and these are known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us a little extra minor details which we'll bring out as we get to that point. The title for the sermon this morning is Like a Child, because that is the lesson that Jesus wants his disciples to understand as they engage in an argument with one another. And so let's get right into it, and we'll walk through this. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the Lord says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. One of the first differences between Matthew's account or recording of this event is in Luke and Mark. They tell us that this argument actually began amongst the disciples as they were walking back to the house where they were staying in the city of Capernaum. Mark adds that Jesus did turn to his disciples and ask them what they were talking about as they were walking. And then this brings us into verse 1 of here in Matthew 18, where disciples finally fessed up to what the argument was about. They wanted to know, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And for me, at face value, it seems like a very odd question. I think the easiest answer would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is obviously God, duh, But we have to understand where the question is coming from. The the better reading of the question of the disciples is, which one of us, 12, will be the greatest? Which one of us will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Again, it's an odd question, but it's really set up in what has occurred in the last couple of chapters. If we were to go back to chapter 16, when Peter confessed the identity of Jesus Christ, saying, you are the son of the living God, Jesus pronounces a blessing upon Peter. When we come into chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, those three only, up onto the mountain where they saw him transfigured, standing with Moses and Elijah, while the other nine were down at the foot of the mountain. Finally, at the end of chapter 17, Jesus has this one-on-one lesson with Peter about temple taxes. And so it must have been brewing amongst the twelve about, okay, who's your favorite? (laughs) Who's going to be the greatest? Now, what also lies behind the question that they were arguing about and eventually told Jesus about is in, within the Jewish culture, there was a favoritism to a hierarchy system. They believed in climbing the cultural ladder because the more prestigious you were, it was believed that it was a blessing by God. So the more prestigious you became, the more blessed you were by God. People would look at you in awe. People would want to be with you. They would want to talk with you and be around you. 
the blessed life within the Jewish culture meant that God favored you. And God blesses you because God is blessing the righteous life, not the sinful life. And so this is all brewing within the disciples and bringing this question, which one, Jesus, is going to be of us the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it is not just speaking about eternal heaven, but talking about the kingdom of heaven and the work that they are doing right now on earth. The prestige was everything. Luke tells us that Jesus knew the reasoning in their hearts. And by his response, their reasoning was, who's your favorite? Who's the teacher's pet? Who do you like the most out of all of us? And with that, how can we move up within this band of merry men? How can we get closer to you? And so it's quite a childish argument, which I find ironic, that Jesus, in fact, brings a child and puts it in the midst. And this is where the lesson begins. The object lesson begins with this child. Luke says, before Jesus put the child in the midst of the disciples, that Jesus first put the child by his side. And I can just picture it as Jesus is standing there with his arm on the shoulder of the child, looking down at him and smiling, and then looking up to smile at disciples before he says what he says in verse 2. Truly I say to you, this is one of Matthew's favorite terms or coined phrases to use when Jesus is getting ready to produce a lesson. The phrase can be read, I tell you the truth. I earnestly assure you I am about to speak truth to you, which you must hear and adhere to. The word turn, unless you turn, in the Greek carries the meaning of change. It's not the same as repenting, rather it is to change your way of thinking and turn to a right way of thinking and understanding such matters. The word become, when he says become like children, the Greek means to be made, to be manufactured, to, to perform. So he's telling his disciples, you need to change the way you're thinking, and I know that's the way you were brought up, and you need to be manufactured like a child. You need to start performing like a child, and they would have understood that meaning within their culture, which we'll bring out. One thing Jesus does point about children and the role they play is in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is telling us, if we want to be great for the kingdom of heaven, we have to have humility like a child. To humble oneself means to bring ourselves low. It's to decrease ourselves in size. In Scripture, the most common physical gestures of humility and being humble is to fall upon your knees, sometimes to fall upon your face on the ground before someone. Mark adds a little bit more of a definition when it comes to humility, when he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Luke writes, for he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. Humility. Now, humility in Jesus' day, just like it is in our day, isn't what's considered a great attribute or characteristic to have. But this is what Jesus is saying, is we have to change our way of thinking. Being great in the kingdom isn't about what we have done 
or what other people have done or what people think about us. It's about how little do we make ourselves so we can serve the kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom of God isn't about who our family is. It isn't about what our family has done for the church. Greatness for the kingdom of God isn't about what we've done for the church. It's about humbling ourselves as servants so God's glory can shine through our lives. The students just returned from camp this last week. I remember when I was a youth pastor, that's, that's where I got my start. And, and I always enjoyed going to camp because, as Jason mentioned, you get rid of the distractions. And, and, and when I was in youth ministry, we'd go to camp, and I'd be like, man, I want to I be the guy on stage. Now, I, I want to be a camp pastor. And I want to travel around the nation and speak at several camps and speak to thousands of teenagers. And I bet if I get good enough, I'll, I'll get called to conferences. And, I, and I'll be like a national speaker. And I'll probably have to start writing books so I can get my name out there more and people can know who Mike Hurchin is. And then I thought, well, uh, you know, when that's all said and done and, and I get to the point I'm, I'm getting tired of traveling and I may continue to write books, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to a Christian university and maybe a seminary and I'm going to teach other students how they can be just as awesome as I am. Real humbling. I'm going to tell you the first five or so years starting in ministry was pretty rocky. There were some good things that happened by the grace of God, but I wasn't humble. I'll even willfully admit, as a youth pastor, just in ministry, I actually felt I knew more than the pastors I served under who had been serving for 30 or 50 years. What a humble spirit. Jesus says, if we want to be great, we have to be humble. The other aspect of humility is it calls us as God's people to reject self-righteousness. Humility can't say, look what I've done. Humility can't say, look what I have accomplished, or look who I am, or the title I hold. Humility says, look what God has done for me, because I couldn't do it myself. Now, as Jesus pulls this child aside and puts him in the midst, the word child here in the Greek implies a child of a single-digit age. And he's just pulled what is to believe, believed to be the least educated individual in the entire house. And it's not that children in this society were disregarded at this time, but they were still learning the ways of the world. They were still learning what is right and what is wrong. They were still growing. Yet Jesus says, imitate this child because it pointed to dependence like a child. See, in this day, you, I know we, some of you all go fishing or hunting, and you may take your children out to do so. But in this day, you didn't take a child out to fish. Because you would go out on a boat, and you would cast this huge net into the water, and then you'd have to pull it up with the fish, and the child would not have the strength to pull the net, net in. They would become a hindrance to the fishermen. You wouldn't take a child and put them in the army because they could barely defend themselves. You wouldn't take a child and take them out to the field to plow it because they wouldn't have the strength to do it and they wouldn't be able to steer the cattle to make it go in a straight line. Children in this day were powerless. I mean, there's no power tools. There's no tractors. There's no lawnmowers. Everything was done by hand. And so children were powerless in the society. They had no status except who their parents were. That's why when you read through Scripture, you find certain individuals named and say that they're the son of 
Because that's the family they belonged to. They were completely dependent on their parents for survival. And this is what greatness in the kingdom looks like. To realize that we're completely dependent on our Heavenly Father for survival. We may know and understand things more than we did when we first came to Christ, but our dependence is on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and that will never change as God's children. We are dependent on acting on God acting on our behalf through his son, Jesus, so that we could receive the spirit of God dwelling inside of us and become the temple of God, be called God's children and heirs to the throne. And so every day, Jesus, this isn't just like this one-time thing Jesus is talking about. He's saying that every day we are to live like children. We are to be completely dependent on God to provide on our behalf. If we were to look back to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, you see that the Lord's Prayer, you know, sometimes we have selfish prayers, and Jesus gave us this model. The Lord's Prayer begins by focusing on God and on His glory and praying for God's will to be done. And then, if you look at the latter part of the Lord's Prayer, it's praying that God would provide. God, provide our daily bread. God, provide forgiveness. God, provide me the ability to forgive others. God, provide me the power to avoid temptation. God, provide me the, the, the deliverance from the attacks of the enemy. Children in Jesus' day were completely dependent on their parents for provision and protection. And that's what we're to be. Completely dependent upon him. And I think in our society, if you're a parent or a grandparent, we understand this idea of dependence. You know, we go to do our taxes, and there's a question there. Do you have any dependents? How many do you have? You know, I don't think if you have kids, then you know this as well. Sometimes kids aren't very humble. Sometimes kids say things that you're like, mm, man. There's some kids and teenagers, students, who think they have this life all figured out. They think their parents or the adults in their life don't know what they're talking about, don't have any idea what's going on. You know, I used to be a student like that as well. And I'll just give you a heads up, parents. For me, it took about the age of 20 when I finally realized, wow, mom and dad do know what they're talking about. And I had to be humble. And I had to depend on their knowledge because they knew things I shouldn't do, and things I should do, they were wise. And this is why to be like a child, it begins with humility. Because if we don't start with humility, we're never going to see the need for a constant dependence. Another thing to be like a child in this society is reliance like a child. It's closely linked with dependence. We depend on God for all things because we have to rely on God for all things. Dependence carries a meaning of trust. Another word we find in the Bible for that is faith. Reliance carries the meaning of confidence. And they're synonymous in many ways that we depend on God to act on our behalf and we rely on the truth of his word that he's given us. And the greatest example I can think about this reliance and this dependence is when it comes to our own salvation was completely reliant on the full work of Christ on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. Ethan, he's gotten older, and so the older he gets, the less reliant he is on Jamie and I for certain things. For example, he can now drive. 
So now he can drive himself to school and drive Abby to school. He can drive himself to practice, drive himself home from practice. He can drive himself to work and all that. And we don't have to do that. He doesn't have to rely on us that much. You know, he still relies on me to fill the gas tank, but we did not have to rely on us to drive him. But I can remember in seventh and eighth grade, Ethan was uh, the basketball manager. It basically meant he got water for the players. He'd give them balls to shoot around during warm-up or during halftime. He'd get towels and do little things for uh, the coach every now and then. And so we would go to some home games on occasion just to kind of support his serving heart for this team. We'd never go to an away game. Well, in seventh grade, Ethan did not have a cell phone. I don't know where you are with your kids and what age you think they should have a cell phone. But in seventh grade, Ethan did not have a cell phone. And so when they would go to an away game, he would have to rely on either the coach or one of his friends so he could call us and say that, hey, we're almost home, so we could come pick him up because he wouldn't be able to get home without that. He did not have the means to accomplish what he needed to accomplish, so he had to rely on other people. And this is what reliance is like a child. Realizing no matter how long we've been a believer, or how long we've been doing ministry, no matter how much experience we have, we do not have the means to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. So we have to completely rely on the Spirit of God to act on our behalf. A little over a week ago, Jamie and I were out on a walk. It was a Saturday morning. It was a nice morning, nice breeze. And uh, we would do what we call our town loop uh, from our house and walk around town and come back to our house and for some reason, in our neighborhood, we have a demonic bird. And for some reason, this demonic bird only goes after Jamie. Because I've been out with Abby in the morning, she's ran and I've walked, and Ethan's gone for runs in the morning, and none of them have ever encountered this bird unless Jamie's with us. And so we're out for a walk, and as we were leaving, the bird came down, and it, you know, it spooked us a little bit, and it, it began doing its demonic squawk. And so we, we just said, well, we just keep, we'll keep going. And so we're coming back, and Jamie gets on this side of me, which is kind of odd because she was walking on this side the entire time. But as we get closer to her house, she moves to the other side. I'm like, what are you doing? So that bird. And as soon as we get... Close to our house, because it, 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 I guess it belongs to people that live two houses down. This bird swoops, and you hear its demonic squawk, and it goes right at Jamie, which makes her jump. And when she jumps, she actually ripped her calf muscle. That's why she's in a boot, so like Forrest Gump, Jamie got new shoes. Um, <laughs> but it was so bad. She, she couldn't even move. And she, she says that it felt like someone was behind her and just punched her in the calf. It actually made her look and see if someone was actually behind her. And this bird was standing in the middle of the street, just obviously staring at her, and just squawking and ruffling its feathers. And so we decided we are going to start backing away, even though it was between us and our house. And then the bird swooped again. So I did my best that way thing I knew to defend her and got in my crane kick pose and I was ready to go. And so we walked down the block and I literally had to call Ethan, say, hey, you got to come pick us up. Your mom cannot even walk. Well, she, 
has this high threshold of pain. That's something you got to know about my wife. She has this very high threshold of pain. And so she really, she had already said she would go to camp as a chaperone. So she said, well, you know, it's starting to feel better. So uh, I'm going to go and I'm going to chaperone. I'll just take it easy and make sure I don't move too fast. Obviously, I'm not going to jump around or run around. And so the first day was fine. Camp was about a half day. They get there in the afternoon. They get in the rooms and supper, worship, and uh, they have time together as a group. Second day, I decided to go visit, so that was Tuesday. It was a full day. I wanted to see what was going on at camp. I wanted to see what the kids were doing, what they were learning, see how excited they were about it. And so since I was there, I wanted to walk around and see things, which Jamie said, you know, I'm going I'm to go with you. Obviously, she's got a little slower step, but so I you know, kind of kept it slow as well. Came on Tuesday night, Wednesday. She tells me she's in excruciating pain. And actually, it sends me a text Wednesday night, but it was, I had already gone to sleep because I'm not a night person. And so I didn't see the text in the morning. I, I think I need you to come and pick me up and take me to the doctor. And so I went Thursday in the morning. I picked her up, took her straight to the doctor. And the doctor said, this is not an uncommon injury. Um, it happens. People jerk and, and things happen like that. And the muscle just it, it shredded itself. And so she has to be in a boot if she's going to move around. He actually told her, so if you see her walking around after church a lot, tell her she needs to go find a seat because he said she has to stay off it as much as possible. But this boot is what's going to help her heal. And so she's reliant upon this boot for healing. We are relying upon God for us to heal properly from our sinful nature. Sin, which has impacted our heart and our mind and our soul, the only one that can fix it is God. And sometimes it's going to be a slow process and a painful process, but we are completely relying upon his power and his provision to change us. Now, the next statement by Jesus begins in verse 5, and it's to emphasize this being like a child and being humble and dependent and reliant. And then in verse 6, He speaks of anyone who causes a little one to sin. He says, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So Jesus is is putting this image before the disciples because there are two types of millstones in this area. There was a small millstone and a large millstone, or what I read is great. Now, the small millstone was attached to a bar which an individual could push and they would grind grain until it was a usable substance. The large millstone was heavy. And so an individual could not push it. So they would harness this millstone to a donkey and he would take it around in circles to grind the grain into a usable substance. So think of it like uh, the first generation carousel, except it didn't go up and down. And the donkey would go around in circles, pushing this millstone or dragging this millstone with him to make the wheat into a usable substance. We also have to keep in mind, Jesus and the disciples at this moment are on the shores, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, at its greatest greatest depth, is 141 feet. And imagine as this child is in the midst, and Jesus makes this statement here in verse 6, this child has just probably heard his first horror story, Right? He's talking about tying a millstone, a large, great millstone to someone's neck and throwing them into the depths of the ocean. 
Yet Jesus changes the wording in verse 6. Instead of speaking of a child, he refers to little ones. So what he's doing now is he's now moving to faith. And he's talking about faith and about those who might be younger in the faith. He's bringing it full circle as the disciples are dealing with who is the greatest he brings them to what would actually be the greatest atrocity for them to do. He's basically telling them and telling us, look, for you who have been with me for a while, you've been growing in your faith. You've been growing in your understanding of who I am. And if you think you are so great, and yet you were to cause someone who has yet to grow in the faith like you have, and yet to grow in the understanding of who I am like you have, and you, you cause them to sin... Or do something that is opposed to God, it would be better for the rest of us to go up the hill and find the greatest millstone that we can find. We tie it to your neck, we take you out on a boat, we throw you off the boat, and you drown in the deepest depths of that sea. Jesus is not advocating murder here, he's pointing to the severity of leading people away from Christ. So he's pointing to the weakness like a child. Now there's some in this room who have been walking with Jesus, who've been in a relationship with God longer than others. There are some in this room who have been walking with Jesus and been in a relationship with God longer than me. There are some in this room who have read your Bible and studied your Bible more than others. There's some in this room who have read their Bible and studied their Bible more than I have. You've had more time to do it. You've had a longer life than I have at this moment. I've just been fortunate enough that God has blessed me to give me resources and teachers and training to do what God has called me to do as a pastor. But Jesus is telling all of us that we have to be aware that there are going to be some younger in the faith, these are what he's referring as the little ones, who are watching what we do and they're listening to what we say. If our actions or our words lead them into sin, Jesus says it would be better for us to be dead. It's not a statement of eternal destruction or going to hell. It is a statement to be aware of the great task that we all have been given to each other. There are some in this room who are stronger in the faith. There are some in this room who are weaker in the faith. But there are going to be times when both the strong and the weak are going to be wrestling with the faith. And we have to be aware that people are watching. Disciples would have understood this allegory, this analogy about little ones being weak. It was the way they understood it in their culture. A child would not have a chance against an adult. That's why as an adult in the faith has to be mindful of a child in the faith to demonstrate what it is to be Christ-like. Jesus points out there in verse 6 that this is a great responsibility that we all hold. That's why Paul gave warning to the Corinthian believers about eating food to idols or they were given to idols. I touched on that last week. This is why Paul rebuked Peter when Peter acted a certain way with Gentile Christians, but when Judeo-Christians showed up, he changed what he was doing. This is why Paul warned Timothy about false doctrines and keeping to the faith. I believe it calls us to responsibility not only for ourselves, but for those who are younger in the faith, to come alongside them in a positive way that they might continue to grow, Paul rebuked the Corinthian believers. He said, look, I want to give you spiritual meat, but because you're not growing in the faith, I can't, and so I have to give you spiritual milk. 
It's a reminder that we all begin as little ones, but we're called to grow in the faith. This is our heartbeat at Harvest Hill. We meet Jesus, and then we begin maturing our relationship with God. Then we go on ministry or mission for people that they can begin to mature. We multiply so people can meet Jesus, and then they mature. And this is the calling. There's another aspect of weakness, but it's, all, it's really not weakness. It's a complete lack of power. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means anyone who has been born, which obviously we all have at one point, was born as a sinner. Meaning we all fall short. Greater than the depths of the Sea of Galilee. The glory of God speaks of his perfection. And since we're all sinners, we can't do anything to fix our problem. We're not just weak, we're powerless. But this is why God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He was one full of power of God. He humbled himself, remained dependent and relying upon God throughout his entire ministry, which led him to the cross and ultimately his death. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose from that tomb three days later to show that he has the power over death and the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. The Bible reveals every individual needs what Christ has done for them. They have to rely upon it, depend upon it, humble themselves before it, and if we don't, the Bible tells us we'll be eternally cut off from God. But what God has done is he's made this incredible gift incredibly easy to accept. It begins by telling God and admitting to him that you're a sinner. You fall short. It then turns to the fact in believing that God sent Jesus, his only son, to this earth to live a life that you couldn't die a death on a cross and rise again that you might be forgiven and given eternal life. And you tell God, you admit you're a sinner, you believe that to be true, and then the final step is this. You must confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That word confess means you have to make it publicly known. That's why we have these times of invitation to invite you to come down the aisle and say, I need to be saved. And if you're here this morning, that's something you need to do, then I'm going to ask you to come down. I'll pray with you. I'll celebrate with you. I I guarantee you there won't be a person in this room who won't be happy for you. But let's become like children, humble, dependent, reliant, but also like children we are to grow. I'm going to ask Ashley to come up and lead us. Let me pray over us real quick. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for giving us your word and your spirit and salvation and forgiveness and the promise of eternal life with you. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day of their salvation and your spirit would grab a hold of their heart and awaken them. We ask you to continue to be glorified in this time, that we not only be hearers of your word, but we be doers of it. And praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.